This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. So today on Second Wind, we have a wonderful woman brought to me by Kelly Grace O'Connor, who recently did a TED Talk, Look It Up, for Goldenistas. Awesome. I just had to do a little plug there for her. However, today I have Jamie Sarchet. She's a wife of 30 years, a mother of two sons, and she has been the director of pre-planning and pre-planning and what? Again, the funeral and memorial services. So yeah. I help people get all their plans in place, hopefully decades before they need it. There you go. Director of that for almost 13 years at Feldman Mortuary, but she didn't start her career dealing with death. In fact, her dream was to work in television and radio. And you're not the only person that started in television and radio and then did a complete about face. And what happened with her is she had some intuition and her own empathic awareness. And then this lightning bolt moment that hit her that changed her mind and her trajectory and her life. And this topic of death, I'm broaching on the Second Wind podcast because I've always been scared to death so uh, and anxious about it. And I believe after all the research I've been doing and talking to people like Jamie, we in the last 200 plus years have kind of separated death from life when really death is part of life. And that could be why we don't talk about it, why we don't have open conversations and good feelings and all the things that we we should and, and deal with it ahead of time. So uh, this is a, a really needed conversation. So Jamie, welcome to Second With the Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so thrilled to be here. And your introduction of me was just so powerful and perfect to the point where I'm thinking I got to transcribe that and use that as my bio. When I go to other engagements. So thank you, you so much. For it. You're welcome. It thank is you. yours. Thank I you. Will, I will send it to you. So let's start because when you hear a lightning bolt moment that, that, you know, we all perk up and go, okay, what was that? What was that for you, Jamie? Yeah, it's really incredibly powerful. So as you said, I, I really was thinking I would be doing a career in TV, but that just really didn't happen. My, my husband got a job in Little Rock, Arkansas. We moved from Denver there. And so there really wasn't a role for me there. And then we moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and there just wasn't a place for me there. And I had children and then just was taking care of children. And it was really, you know, powerful and important work and just sort of didn't know what I was going to be next. I had a very close friend who went to meet with the owner of Feldman Mortuary. She was considering a career as a death doula, which is kind of a new-ish thing. And she thought, I'll go speak to him. And she's good friends with his brother. 
I'll go speak to him and see if he has some thoughts on the subject. He didn't know anything about it, but he said to her, I'm looking for someone to do um, pre-planning. Are you interested? And just that evening, she and I had dinner and she shared with me that conversation. And I knew nothing about pre-planning, literally didn't know anything about funerals other than the ones I had been to, but I just absolutely knew that was the job for me. It was literally a light bulb or lightning Lightning bolt. bolt. You said you you felt it in your body. I did. I just absolutely knew that it was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I never questioned Mm -hmm. it. I never had second thoughts about it. And I went to meet with Jim, who I have known for a long time. He and I grew up together, basically. And so I went to meet with him and just told him, I know this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. The interesting thing is he literally never looked at my resume. And it just, um, we both just knew it was the right thing. And, um, And it has been. It has been this incredibly powerful job, but also like, it's really my life mission. And I'm so lucky and grateful because how many people get a career in their life mission? Most people, you know, work to live, which is, you know, it's a way of being, but Mm -hmm. my work is such a powerful and important part of my life. And I am able to touch so many people in their lives to help them to have a lot of peace of mind. And then when their death occurs, and as he said, it's going to happen for all of us. It's part of life. Uh. Yeah, I know it's scary. (laughs) When their death occurs, their loved ones are really just cared for. They, They don't have to step out of their emotional connection to do pragmatic decision making because those decisions have already been made. And they are given the gift of a healthy and healing bereavement. Wow. Wow. And it's amazing to me. I mean, this is such a departure from what you never even pondered something like this. And to have, you had that like aha moment, which we're referring to as the lightning bolt moment. But like, did you go home after getting this moment and going, what am I thinking? Did that ever happen? Or did you talk to your husband and go, so I think I want to deal with death. You know, it's an interesting thing because I just have always been good at talking about hard stuff. And so I think I saw this as just the next step in the hard stuff. I was a person growing up, you know, who my friends would come to me if they were worried about having um, an STD or they were worried about being pregnant. I was the one they would turn to because I knew how to deal with this stuff. I mean, I think that of one friend who in high school came to me and shared with me that she was bulimic. And, you know, I think she did that because she knew I would take the next step with her. It would be the voice of reason. Yes. And help her get the help that she needed. Sometimes people would be mad at me because I would push them to to take those steps. And I think that happens with my job now that sometimes people are like, they don't want to do the things that they need to do. Yeah, for sure. And that's okay. Yeah, and that's okay. And I am really pushing against cultural norms in the work that I do. And that's really been true my whole life that I'm comfortable, comfortable. I'm going to put that in quotation marks because sometimes it's painful and scary and 
there's pushback and I can lose connection sometimes, but I know what I believe to be right. And I have to do what I believe to be right. And that can be hard, but also really important. And I do think that for a lot of people, it's life-changing. Oh, for sure. And it needs to be more of a standard practice. You and I were talking about that and actually bring death into life. And those, those tough conversations and turning people like, like when Frank and my husband and I went to do our will, I said, okay, before we start, I need to say to you that you have to say, if I die, not when, when. because if you start saying when I'm going to leave, I'm not gonna be able to handle it. And this is maybe 10 years ago. She's like, okay, so we're doing the thing. She goes, okay, Frank, when you die, blah, 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 blah. What do you want to have happen? And she goes, Wendy, if you die. (laughs) And then talking to you and doing the research I've done, I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous that I, that you can't do that. But we're going to get through this. So I would like to talk about you growing up a little bit. Who is Jamie? Because being that person that people turn to, you recognized very early that you had special gifts. And even though you were in some situations that weren't, you know, embracing that or cultivating that or helping that flourish within you, you knew you had it and you were able to help people right from the get-go. So let's let's dive back into Jamie. Who is Jamie, Jamie? <laughs> I love this conversation with you, Wendy, but it's really like being in my therapist's office. So I appreciate it. And I'm going to have a little vulnerability hangover after this. I'm certain. Yes. Yes. So yeah, I grew up in Denver. I have an older brother. I have parents who were very unhappily married. And I knew that my whole life as a very small child. And I think that that's part of uh, just knowing I have that kind of empathy to really have a sense of what's going on. And I just remember like, even as a very, very small child sitting at the front door when my parents would go out and I literally was never sure they'd come home. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yeah. And so that was a fairly, that was fairly terrifying. And, and, and I just always felt like I was like the most powerful person in the family. And Mm. that's not a safe, that's not a safe place for a child. You know, like that, that's not. That's interesting. You were insecure about your parents even being part of your world. Like they could disappear at any moment, but you felt empowered? Not empowered, but like I was the, like I was the one who was, I don't know how to say this, Like, I felt like I was the one who had to drive the family system. You were the glue. I don't know. I think I was also the wedge. So, um, okay. So I always felt like I was the one who could see things in my house and could, wow, this is hard to, it's hard to come up with. I'm not sure I have the language for it, but, but it just felt like, like thinking that I had to sort of drive the family system really felt insecure. Like a small child shouldn't be in charge of things, shouldn't be the one to say, you know, I need this and this and this. I should have been getting those things, you know, that a child should be more companioned. And I didn't feel like I had somebody holding my hand to walk through my life. I sort of, I think I felt I had to drag my parents along to get my needs met. Maybe that's the way to say that. Yes. 
I didn't get the nurturing that I needed. And so that was really challenging. And I remember when when I was five, my parents came and said they were getting separated. And I actually was so thrilled. They they were so unhappily married. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be a really good thing for all of us. Hmm. And I remember going to, you know, kindergarten or first grade or wherever I was at that stage and feeling like, oh my God, I have to share this. This is like really good news. And, wow. and they got separated for a year and then got back together for what I would call 17 more, you know, really challenging years. Oh, so they wow. ultimately got divorced when I was 22, but they were really not meant to be together. They, they really had a very volatile kind of interaction all the time. And so that didn't feel safe. So, and, and when I say volatile, like no, no um, violence or anything like that, but really just a lot of emotional difficulty. And they would yell at each other and cuss at each other for really dumb things. Like even now, when um, just the other night I was thinking about this, I um, parked in the middle of my garage because my husband was supposed to be spending the night somewhere else. And ultimately that changed. And so he came home and he parked on the street because my car was in the middle of the garage. And I I was so apologetic to him. He's like, this is no big deal at all. But I remember my parents fighting about who parked on whose side of the driveway. Oh my gosh. Like it was those kinds of difficulties, like just angry at each other for nothing. Although I'm sure it was covering lots of things. Well, they just trigger um, each other, it sounds like, yes, all the time. Yeah, all the time. And so that felt so insecure all the time. I was just always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. And it, it just, yeah, it's just very, very challenging. So, oh. you know. So you decided, okay, I'm out of here for college. Yeah, yeah. So I went to college. I went to college in Indiana and don't know exactly how I got there. Um, I think really how I got there was that, um, when I went to visit, it looked like what I thought college should look like. Oh yeah. Like it was this beautiful old campus, big leafy trees. And I come from, you know, a land of evergreens and, um, it looked like all the movies that I had seen of college. Okay. And so I decided to go there and it was not a good fit for me. There was a great, um, media, department. So that was good. And I got to work in the radio on the radio station and I got to work in the newspaper and that was all really good. But other things were not so good. Socially it was very, very challenging for me. And it was a really conservative campus. There were very few Jewish people and I'm Jewish and most people there were from pretty small towns and like didn't know Jewish people. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. And, and it was really very white. And so like I think about the kids who were there who were black, like it must have just been multiplied how difficult it was. Yeah. And, and again, such a conservative place and I'm not a conservative person at all. And in fact, I would cause trouble for myself because I had to speak up all the time. And so it was just always, it was hard and it just, it just didn't fit. It just didn't fit me, but I stayed there for all four years. Is that when you discovered Gloria Steinman? Uh, So Gloria Steinem, I think I started reading Gloria Steinem when I was about 16 years old. Okay. And I really think that I needed to kind of figure out who I was. And she was, her writing really helped me to do that. And I didn't really recognize how powerful and um, important she was in my life 
um, until 2008. And in 2008, she was traveling the country. It was when Barack Obama got the Democratic nomination. And she was traveling the country to help people who were Hillary Clinton supporters to come along to support Barack Obama. And so I got the opportunity to host her at my house. Oh my gosh. Yes. Very powerful and lovely. And I had about 80 people here. How do you even clean your house for something like that? Oh my God. It It was okay. And so it was really fun. And um, so in preparation for that, I reread Revolution from Within. Mm-hmm. And in rereading it, I looked at that and I said, oh, my God, all of my way of parenting my two sons comes directly out of this book. And it also goes back to my own childhood of that idea of never feeling understood, never feeling seen and never being able to be authentic. And yeah. and that that's what she talks about is how important those things are. And that has always been what I wanted to do with my children is allow them to always know that whoever they are is good. Right. We want to be connected with who they are and help them to find their best selves and to feel comfortable in their own skin and to feel like they can be authentic and seen and be honest with us You know, one of the things that I think, I don't know if it comes from this book or what, but one of the things that I've really wanted to do with my children who are 23 and 26 is allow them to tell me when I'm not giving them what they need and not be be angry about it. Try hard not to be defensive about it, although I'm not always great at that, but to allow them to say, hey, I need something different from you. Mm. And And it does really allow us to have a deep connection because they can be honest with me and and I can be honest with them. Not funny. We all seem to do that. The things that we didn't get when we were growing up, we we try to, you and I both try to do that with our children, lines, open lines of communication, nourishing them. But yeah, same thing. My oldest son, I'll, you know, he'll call me with a problem and I'm instantly trying to solve it for him. Oh, well, did you try this? Did you say this? Did you call this? Person? He's like, no, I'm just telling you. I'll figure it out. Yeah. And you have to sit back and go, okay, you can. Yes. You're 29. You probably could. <laughs> yeah, but it's scary. And like, that's one of the things that I find the most challenging is my kids in pain. Yeah. So I None of us like it. that. Yeah. We want to fix it all. And we have to sit back. I had a lady on that I talked to a couple of days ago. She said, sitting back and not uh, not trying to solve it. And not, it was uh, Andrea Barthello. Her, her episode was out and uh, she said, the biggest thing I had to learn was waiting to be asked for advice <laughs> instead of giving it and just listening. Yes. I'm like, praise that. Yep. We all need to do that. Yes. I'll tell you the one thing that I push again so hard is when friends tell me what I should do. That's what her whole episode was oh, about. Yeah. I hate yeah. that. Yeah. I, I well, like how did the, you Oh, keep going. I like the language of I wonder if oh. I wonder if this would be yeah. a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That is that that is that's really cool that you said that. Yeah. Wonder if. I wonder if. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so tell me. You do the glorious diamond thing. You're you, obviously you're implementing 
it was required reading for me at my all women's college uh, when I went there for two years. Yeah. So I know what you're talking about. And I think a lot of people who are second winders know of Gloria Steinman. And it yes. shouldn't be a forgotten, a forgotten read for sure. No, it's good. Yeah. Especially for our younger women coming up, st- standing on our shoulders, they need to probably read this as well. I don't think it's yes. out of date, although some of the, you know, the Playboy bunny stuff and all that, you know, to go in and disguise. Yeah. It's all, it's all really cool. Anyway, I digress. So you're doing the mom thing. You are trying to raise your kids, filling the gaps that you did not have and doing a great job at it. And you and your husband move and he's in um, the Associated Press, right? Yeah. So you're still kind of with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and interestingly, I think um, I do a lot of this kind of stuff. So I do a lot of podcasts and I do a lot of videos myself. And I think that that's a way that I feed that kind of, you know, that media connection. Because I okay. really, I do like it a lot. I really do like it. And so it's nice to to continue keeping that in my life a little. Oh, so that's best of both worlds there. So what are you doing with your life pre-conversation with friend who wants to be a death doula? Yeah. So at that time, I was working for a legislator. Um, I was an aide to a state house legislator. Um, I've always been pretty politically active. And and so I went to work with him, which was a great, fun job. I worked at the Capitol. It was part time and it's really paid on it. Paid is really in quotation marks. I mean, I think it was re- it's really almost a volunteer job. Right. And And it was great because I could help people solve some issues. You know, and they would call the office and often they would call about things that have nothing to do with the state house. They would call oh, because they were really? seniors in need of having somebody to shovel their walk. And oh. so I am a big believer that we have to help people to understand that government is number one is us and that it yeah. works for people. And so instead of saying, well, you really need to do, you know, why don't you call your city council person? That's not something we do, or I don't know how to help you find this. I would really find what they needed and get it done for them. So they oh, walk wow. Away. Yeah. So they would walk away thinking, yeah, government really does work. And I think it's important. And I'm just not somebody who passes things back to people, which sometimes is a negative. You know, just like you said, with kids, sometimes it's a negative. And the other thing that's interesting for me is I am somebody who feels like if somebody asks something of me, I am required to give it to them, which is not so great and is also sort of what I'm discovering is being the child of maybe narcissistic parents that, you know, like feeling like, oh, I got asked to do this. So now I must do this. And I'm I'm the chosen one. No one else can do it but me. Right. And and that it's just required. And so that is a good thing for other people because I get shit done. You know, I get (laughs) shit done. And um, but it can be sometimes very overwhelming for me. But that works really well. That kind of way of being in the world works really well in, you know, in, in the role I was in for the legislature. And and so I did that for two years. And then I just thought, I want something more. 
and I'm ready for something more. And I really just started putting that out in the universe. And then that's when Karen came to me telling me she'd just heard of this. When you were putting it out in the universe, what is that? What did that look like for you? Well, I don't know that I knew that's what I was doing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, go back several years before that, I had gone to my husband's grandmother's funeral. Mm. Oh, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah. Yeah. And at that time I was, you know, not knowing what I wanted to be. And I was maybe 35 and um, the funeral director and her name was also Karen. And I don't know why I remember that, except it was meaningful. So she was so kind and loving and lovely and helped us to walk this path. And I turned to my mother-in-law and I said, oh, that looks kind of good to me. Maybe that's something I could consider. But I never went further than that. And quite honestly, I'm a terrible funeral director when I do that um, at Feldman's now. I'm not good at it. I'm much better at what I do. But I really thought at that time, oh, that looks good to me. And then it was probably at least five years before I heard about what was happening at Feldman. You know, I said, that looks good to me and then didn't do anything about it. And then this showed up. So this, this was really the way I'm supposed to do it. Yeah. The, and you noticed, you noticed the name, Karen, cause that was your friend, Karen, yes. who brought this opportunity to you out of nowhere because she was yes. looking for an opportunity. And you were enamored with this woman and how she carried herself and how she did the job. Very interesting. And that just was like, oh, well, look, she's doing this so great. And and again, emulating probably. And it was one of those thoughts, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just. It, oh, wouldn't that be it, fun? Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to ride my bike uh, 400 miles. Oh, that's an interesting thought, right? Yeah. One of those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. And then it cooks. So that's what happened, I think, is that it cooked. And, and the universe cooked on it for me to, to bring this to me, I think, too. Oh, I like that. You and the universe were in a little slow cooker. There you go. You didn't there even you know it. Crock pot. Yes, crock pot. And you didn't even know it. Oh, yeah. that's great. So back to you telling your husband, did you tell your husband, hey, I got this, this thought from Karen, my friend, and I think I'm going to go talk. To he's super Mr. supportive. I mean, he's super supportive. He didn't say you, you crazy? Why you no, want to do that? he didn't at all. In a funeral no. home? No, no. He just said, okay, great. That sounds good. Great. Yeah, no, he he's really very, um, you know, I'm so lucky to have him. He, yeah. When I we talk, to visit like, how you guys decided to get together yeah, real quick. I'd love to share that with you. Cool. Um, but he really is somebody who helps me to feel confident in who I am. And, um, and that's really very lovely. I think that that's probably what he, his role is in my life is to help me to feel more complete of who I am Um, and help me to feel confident to do the things I need to in my life. He's a really wonderful supporter of me. And the security you never had. Yeah, that's exactly right. The security I never had. And he loves me no matter what. It doesn't mean he doesn't get angry at me, but he loves me no matter what and loves me, I think, often more than I love myself. Oh, that's exactly what we're supposed to look for, I think. Yeah. But yeah. you say that you had a arranged marriage. I do. Yeah, we did. We absolutely have an arranged marriage. So we've been together since we were 19 and 20, I think. 
and we'd been friends for a long time. His parents and my parents met at somebody's bar mitzvah. Um, They liked each other. And his mom, Carol, would call my mom. And, you know, of course, that's when you had landlines. And I was home and my mother was never home. And um, (laughs) Carol would talk to me. And then when I was about 15, she started taking me to lunch. Interesting. Yeah. And she, I will really tell you, is the first person who I believe loved me unconditionally. Did she have daughters? uh, She has a daughter and she has three sons. And, And she just was so good to me. And one day when I was about 16, I told her I thought John was cute and he is and really was then. Oh, my her God, son, her son, her son, John. her son, John. And and that was really that was when she started moving forward in that path to bring us together. And we had our first kind of date date. I'll put that in quotation marks. When I was a senior in high school and he was a a freshman at um, Colorado University in Boulder, and I called him and told him that I was going to Boulder to look for a prom dress, which was a total lie. But um, would he like to have lunch with me? And we had lunch and we had fun. And I think after that, he was talking to Carol, his mom, and told her that that we had a good time. And she's like, are you going to see her again? And he is like, I don't think so. Because he's not um, the freshman in college, the freshman in college, but yeah. also like he didn't date a whole lot. Like a lot of women really liked him, but he didn't he didn't know how to take that in. But when we so we were good friends for a long time. And then I think it was when I was about 19, we were at we went out one night and he said to me, you know, I just want to be friends. And I said, I don't think so. I don't think you just want to be friends. And, and then we weren't just friends. Then we got very, very serious and got engaged, you know, at 22 and 23 and married at 23 and 24. And thank God it's worked out really well. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who got married at that age who are still married. And it's, it's really very funny to think about it because like when we were picking our wedding invitations, we didn't even know what colors we liked. Like our wedding invitations have a gray background with a white card and black writing on them because we didn't know what colors we liked. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, and that's so, so we're funny. so lucky that we could could grow together. And we have, yeah. we've done a lot of growing and have been in a lot of therapy and really have changed each other for the better and are just really committed to, to this marriage. And it's really funny. Like I was always sure my parents would get divorced long before they, they did. And, you know, as I said, kind of looking forward to that happening, I don't think my kids have ever thought that we would get divorced. I think our kids have always very felt very secure in our marriage. And quite honestly, I think that that's the biggest gift we've ever given them. Yeah. Is that sense of security. And I love that you said therapy. Yeah. It's, Frank and I will work with Ola, who is also on the show with Imago yep. Therapy. And every time we start to go sideways and um, I'm getting triggered by him or he's getting triggered by me, it's like, we're calling Ola. <laughs> I don't know what Imago Therapy is. It's more just, you know, repeating. So my husband will be asked a question and how does that make you feel, Frank? And he'll say how he feels. And then I have to listen and repeat it back. And this girl gets it wrong almost every time because I'm not actually listening. And so I'm, you know, we already go to our defenses in our mind and, and 
and so on. And, and I wonder how much that has to do with when you're sitting there talking to families about an impending death. If, if they're blocking because it's painful or they're defensive about it. So let's talk a little bit about what you do. Yeah. So let's do, because I'm not usually talking to people about an impending death. Oh, you're not? I am, no. I am hopefully oh. meeting with them decades before a death. You know, my clients, my, the average age of my client is 73. I would like to see it be more like 53. Really? Um, It is much easier to think about this stuff when it is theoretical. So (laughs) I do meet with people when they are dying sometimes, but I'm not usually the right person if it's pending. If it's going to be in the next couple of weeks, it's not for me. It's really for the funeral directors because they should, the family should start a relationship with the funeral director. Gotcha. So you're like, are you like the liaison between the, are you like the the first step that people take? Only if they're doing it long before a death. Okay. So like if you, if you, Wendy and Frank wanted to make these plans now, which Mm. I would encourage you to. I know. Okay. That doesn't mean you have to, but I think it's a good idea. I did my own plans when I was 42. Wow. My husband has his plans. Our parents all have their plans. Sometimes I think about doing my kids' plans. I probably should. But you do it long, 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 long before it's needed. Although, quite honestly, Wendy, how do we know when it's going to be needed? I know every day. You just never know. Never know. And if COVID has taught us anything, we're all vulnerable. You're right. You never know. And so I'm meeting with people, hopefully, you know, while they're still well and just that they want to be realistic about this and they want to have the peace of mind. They don't want to worry about what will happen to their loved ones when they die. They want to make sure that their loved ones are still cared for. And so that's what I'm helping them to do. So Jamie, what's the difference then? Something that you just said triggered me a little bit, like with the, in a good way. So sitting with the lawyer doing the will, and we want, like we set up a thing that the house will be taken care of and there will be money for somebody to come in and take care of all our animals. Oh, that's good. Yes. Good <laughs> you know, for you. Cause I, I'm like, ah, what happens to all our animals? So what's the difference between the will of what you want to have happen? Like, Versus talking to somebody like you. So quite honestly, in a will, there is often a disposition of last remains. I've never seen one bring, never seen one come into the funeral home. Never. In the 14, 13 years, sorry, 13 years that I've been doing this work, no one has ever brought their disposition of last remains, their loved one's disposition of last remains. Because it's in the safe deposit box. Or it's, you know, they don't think of it. When somebody dies, you don't call the lawyer for the will. You call the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And so when you make the plan with the funeral home, it is the whole plan. So the disposition of last remains likely says, I want to be buried. This is the cemetery I want to be buried in. Or I want to be cremated and have my my cremated remains scattered at such and such location. Maybe it says that. Okay. But the plan that you do with me answers 120 questions, provides, yeah, provides everything that's going to be needed on the death certificate, 
provides what's going to go in the newspaper notice if there's going to be one. Oh is my gosh. Be, it's so much further and it's paid for. So you pay for it in today's dollars. Funerals and memorial services double in cost every seven to 10 years. So when you do it now, you avoid all of that inflation and you can pay for it over time if you want to. So like in my case, I paid for mine with a life insurance policy that somebody like me provides. And if God forbid I had died during the five years I was paying for it, there's a life insurance component. Now I have life insurance. I have whole life insurance. That's Mm -hmm. all going to be in effect at the time of my death. Mm -hmm. That's for a legacy for my children. That's to pay off my house. That's to take care of my husband. If God forbid, you know, I die, he needs some time to process that. He needs to be taken care of for a while before he would need to go back to work. So that life insurance is for that. But I provide a specific policy that's just for the funeral. And it can save thousands and thousands of dollars. But the thing that it saves most is emotional pain for the people who love me. So they don't have to make all these decisions. They never have to question if they did it correctly because they know they're doing what I want because I made the decisions. They'll never have to argue with each other. They'll never have to say, mom told me she wanted to be buried. No, mom told me she wanted to be cremated. No, mom told me she wanted composting. Yes. And the other thing is there are a lot of different kinds of ways of being cared for. And when we don't make our decisions ahead of time, often the correct decisions are not the ones that are made. Because often what happens is we get on the path of least resistance. Mm. I typically see that as being fire cremation. And that's because people can't make decisions at the time of somebody's death. They're exhausted. They're overwhelmed. And they think we've got a dead body. Let's get rid of the dead body. And fire cremation is the cheapest way to do that. It seems convenient. It seems easy. And then often people feel like their loved one disappeared. They don't have any ritual to help them to process their grief. And it often goes against what people's values are in life because cremation, fire cremation is actually environmentally terrible. Yeah, you told me that I was shocked. Right. Most people are shocked. They think since they're not using up space that it is a great decision. It's a terrible decision if they want to do things environmentally in an environmentally sustainable way. It is terrible. And so it's just really important that these decisions get made ahead of time. It just and and long ahead of time, not when somebody's in hospice, because when somebody's in hospice, our job as the people who care for them is to be present for them and for our own emotions about it. There's no window that will close. We don't have to let the funeral home know ahead of time this is going to happen. Number one, we can't calendar it anyway. So when somebody's dying, literally actively dying, that's not the time to do this. Wait until after the death, unless it gives you a sense of control over something. But do it long before, long before. And the truth of the matter is we're all dying. We just don't know when that'll be. That's what happens. That's what our life is. 
You're right. Ryan Holiday, the Stoic, he's the, the guy that talks about all the Stoics. And he said, hey, sorry to tell you this. I'm usually not right at predicting all the time, but I can predict this. You're dying right now. You hear that and you're like, oh, God. Yes. I <laughs> once did I'm a, turning the channel. <laughs> yeah. I once did a presentation. Um, we watched the film Being Mortal, which is a tool Gawande. Do you know that book, Being Mortal? Oh, it's a great book. You ought to read it. I'm going to read it now. Okay. And then there's a frontline documentary and he's a surgeon. And in this documentary, he's going to meet with all these palliative care physicians and these, these people who have terminal diagnoses. And he's talking to them and talking about what he wishes he would have done differently as a doctor and learning from all of this. Anyway, we watched this film and about 75 people were having a conversation about it. And this man raised his hand when we were having this conversation and he said, but these people all know they were dying. So it makes sense to me that they were making their plans. They know they're dying. And I'm like, well, we should all know oh, yeah. we're dying. Yeah. But just like you, people want to think if, not when. If it's an if. There's another good book that I want to mention while we're talking about it, it was by Catherine Mannix called With the End in Mind. And uh, that that helped me a lot say, oh, I should probably do something on the podcast about death because it gave me a whole new way to look at it, which was very, I'm not going to say that word. Cathartic. Cathartic. That's my word. But with Lyme, I have no mind. And you were talking about another good point of doing it ahead of time is when you have grief, you were saying, uh, because we're talking about my Lyme symptoms right now. And you were saying, oh, I find that with people in grief, they also kind of get cloudy in their minds and their decision-making. And, and that's a part of grief because grief takes over part of your brain. And that it's going to be worth talking to people who uh, know a lot about that also, what happens yes. to our minds. So doing it ahead of time, obviously, for many reasons is important. Do you have like, because you're, you're talking to people, but you're also opening up. Is there, I'd love for a couple of things. One, a situation where you ran into some people that were like, whoa, I'm not, you know, the resistance you were talking about. And then maybe talk about a situation where maybe you had the resistance, maybe it's the same one, where you had the resistance and then you were able to work through it with these people because that's your skill. You were able as a young woman to sit with a friend who was dying and be able to ask the questions like, how are you feeling about this? Where everybody else kind of runs away. I ran away. My dad was dying. We knew it for two years. I spent time with him. But did I ever say, hey, how are you doing with this? I don't think I did because you just don't want to address the elephant in the room. Well, and I think what happens is that you don't want to make him feel worse. You know, I think that's what it is. And then he's not going to bring it up with you because he doesn't want to make you feel worse. So uh, talking about it is supposed to be so good. Well, it is good, but we're terrified by it. Yeah. Because we're told culturally that we never should, that it's morbid and it's yeah. dumb. It's not morbid. Yeah, that's right. So um, I'll tell you one story. So I had a, uh, a person call me and she said, you know, my parents are getting older. I really want them to put these plans into place. I'm really terrified for what's going to happen when mm-hmm. one of them dies. I don't know what to do. How do I do this? And I said, I know it's scary, but I just want you to know it doesn't make anything happen. So I'm going to encourage you to be brave and talk to your mom about this and then let Mm. me know. So she did. She went to her mom and she said, mom, I I really just want to talk about this. Is this okay? And her mom said, oh, thank God. I wanted to talk to you about it, but I was afraid I'd make you scared. 
And so I think that it can be really good. I will tell you that oftentimes people will tell me they want to put the plans into place, but their kids tell them not to. What? Yeah. Their kids don't want to acknowledge the reality of mortality. So I have a client who they did a plan. They had been paying on it for over a year. And they called me and said, our kids are horrified that we put this plan into place. They say we have to cancel it. What? No, 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 no. And I said, well, that's a terrible idea. If you cancel it, you're going to lose a lot of money. And your kids are going to have to pay for it at the time of your death. It's going to be a lot more money and they're going to have to make all the decisions. And she said, well, they say they are horrified. We have to cancel. And I could not convince them even to do a reduced paid up, which would allow them to salvage some of the money. They wouldn't do it. So they lost all this money. And now when they die and they will, Mm. their kids are going to have to face this at that time. And I just really do think that the kids were just convinced that if you look at death, it makes death happen. It makes it happen. And it doesn't. Like a superstition. Yeah, like a superstition. And it doesn't make it happen. I did 180 plans this year. Everybody's fine. Oh, wow. They're living. They're doing well. And when it does happen, the path is going to be created for their loved ones to walk on. It's a gift. It's a gift and it doesn't make anything happen. And I will tell you that many, many, many of my clients who come in, they come in scared and they've never had a conversation about this. And they always say, I have the weirdest question. It's never a weird question. They just think they're weird for having questions. What's the weirdest question? It's never weird. I will tell you, I did get one weird question once. And I'm so grateful that this woman asked me the question. So this was a woman whose mother had died. They were Iranian. And so they come from a very modest culture. And this daughter believed something that she misunderstood. And I don't know if it was about a language barrier. In Jewish tradition, ceramic shards are placed on the eyes to keep them closed. Somehow this daughter understood that to be clay placed in all of the orifices. So she, for some reason, believed that to be true. So believed that her mother was treated in an incredibly immodest way. Right, right. And so that was really weighing on her. And thank God, I went to visit with her after the death and after the funeral. And she got to ask me that question. And so I got to help her with that. Yeah. And so I took that off of her soul. It was burdening to her because she thought she had done something wrong by allowing that to happen to her mother. I had another situation where I was teaching a class about all this. I, it's called "What What Are You Dying to Know?" So it invites people to what ask all their questions. And this woman, her mother had died suddenly, and she had her cremated because that's all she knew to do. She got on the path of least resistance, and then a cousin told her that that was the wrong thing to do because then her mother would never be able to be, what is it called? Like in resurrected. resurrected. So she was sure her mother would not be able to be resurrected because she was cremated. And first of all, I said to this woman, that was a very mean thing. That's a horrible thing to say after the fact. 
after the fact, what a horrible thing to do to somebody. And I said to her, you know, I believe that if God can make a body, God can make another body. So you didn't do anything to hurt your mother. And hopefully that gave her a little bit of peace because she was able to ask. Mm -hmm. But the questions are really never very weird. They're just normal. They'd be like, you know, what is a casket like? Or I can't even think of any. Yeah, They're just yeah, such yeah. normal questions to me. Right. Because they're good things to ask. It's good to know. It's good yeah. to know. And I, you know, I don't know about you, Wendy, but like sometimes I will wake up in the middle of the night kind of panicking about something, you know, and then I can't sleep and I'm just, it's just going and going and going in my the wheels head. are turning. The wheels are turning and I feel terrified. And then when the sun comes up, I think, oh, that's okay. It's not so scary. There's something about being in the darkness, in the not knowing not that is knowing. scary. When we turn on the lights, it's a lot less scary. That is such a great way you just said that. A hundred percent. So what, it's kind of a, a sad, I mean, you don't look at it as sad. What, what keeps you positive and wanting to do this difficult work? Oh, what a good question. You know how when somebody has a loved one die and you think, oh, I wish there were something I could do. Mm -hmm. There is something I can do. So okay. first of all, I've helped them at the beginning, you know, long before they need it. And I have given them the path to walk on. And when somebody dies, whether I have helped their loved one put a plan into place or not, I know what needs to be done. And so I can help them take the, some of the air out of the balloon. You know what I mean? They're under yeah. so much pressure and I can alleviate some of that pressure because I know how to help. And that is such a lovely thing. So helping, what I'm hearing you yeah, what I'm hearing you say is helping is what fills your soul. No question. Oh, no question. Love that. Love that. Yeah, no How, question. And that's what, a great thing and a not so great thing. Because as we've said, sometimes I feel required to do things yeah. that aren't mine. Right. So it's a both. Yeah, that's probably a constant for all of us, the boundary thing. Yes. That we yes. have to work on. Yeah, I'll have somebody on talking about boundaries too. Don't. Oh, worry. I can't wait for that one. I need. Don't that worry, one. we'll do that yeah. too because we. I just want to hit all subjects that could hit any of us at any time. So, yes. if you were to leave this interview with something you wanted the uh, listeners and viewers to know, the most important thing, what would that be? I think that the most important thing is to be authentic, be vulnerable. And know that that's okay, that there is strength in vulnerability. You know, when people die or, um, and we're grieving for them, we think that what's strong is to be what we think as a, as stoic, like to keep a stiff upper lip. Keep it together. Keep it together. That's what's being strong. That's not true. Strength is allowing ourselves to feel whatever it is that we feel and to, to own it, to share it with others. That's what being strong is. That's what's being courageous. Courage is not being fearless. 
courage is having the fear and looking at it in the face and taking care of the things that we need to take care of. You know, I was just listening to a book by um, a rabbi named Steve Leader, and he was talking about how when he visits with the dying, they're not worried about themselves. They're not worried about their death. They're worried about how their loved ones will be after they're gone. Mm. And that's the stuff I worry about is, will my family be okay when I'm not here to take care of them? By doing these things in advance, we are still there to take care of them when they need it the most. You're right. And we don't give other people our responsibilities. Typically, we we take care of our stuff. We are the ones in charge of our lives. And we shouldn't burden our loved ones with being in charge of this either. We should take care of it and give them this gift for when they need it most. And we don't be present when with you, anything. right? Yeah. Being present for the the event. Yeah, being able life. to not have to step out to do all the pragmatic stuff. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Jamie, thank you so much for your time today and your insight. I feel a little better <laughs> about it. And how can can anybody get in touch with you? Do you offer that? Absolutely. They are welcome to get in touch with me. Um, they can find me by Googling my name, Jamie Sarchet, and they can find me at Feldman Mortuary. My email is jamie at feldmanmortuary.com. And I'm all over LinkedIn. I'm be happy for them to connect with me. And if they live in a state other than Colorado, I can serve as a consultant for them, but I cannot put these plans into place for them. They would need somebody in their state, but I can absolutely help them to find that. So you do offer consultations. Sure. Oh, that's so important. We didn't even talk about that. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Because you will make anyone feel comfortable, oh. you know, just sitting with you. Any, anybody, so even fun. somebody as anxious about it as I, I would love to sit with you and be like, okay, she's going to take me through this and it's going to be all right. Well, and Wendy, I just have to say, I hear you say that you have anxiety about it and it may, I believe you, but you're in it still. You're still allowing yourself to look at it. And that, yeah. I, I just have to give you a lot of props for that. Oh, thanks. Well, that's yeah. what second wind does. It makes you look at everything. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and that, that is where we are in our life is just saying yep. it's okay to look at everything. Look at everything. Yeah. Ponder, feel it. Yeah, and feel then it. decide whether you want to keep it or let it go. Absolutely. For sure. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jamie. I love talking to you. We are now BFFs. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.